Welcome back to Porch Stories. I'm Mallory Gibson. This week, me and my co-hosts, Billy Bailey and Larry Hakey, discuss the removal of our creek ancestors and how Porch Creek avoided removal. Mr. Larry also shares the story of Porch Patriarch, Lynn McGee. So for this episode, we will be diving in more to removal period and how Porch was able to stay here in Alabama. So starting off the episode, what led to the removal of the creeks? There was a lot of things, and and one of the major um, things all along that the Creek Nation had to deal with uh, ever since the Europeans came to this country is desire for the land. I think whenever we talked uh, last uh, that we saw where you know, the Europeans coming in, they were seeing the country around them, and to their notion, that country should be farmed and should be productive. The lands around them should be productive, producing crops and selling for cash crops. And uh, the Creeks and the American Indians did not live that fashion, but yet they had the territory that they utilized on a regular basis and, you know, I got to thinking about that different idea about lands and uh, usage of lands. Of course, Europeans said there should be a farm there. And the Indians is looking at there and it's providing them with all of the things that they need for their daily life that grew there naturally. You know, woods for uh, the manufacturing of bows and, you know, cane for arrows and other things, game and certain plants. The medicines. Medicines, you know, so there was not a need on their part to cut the trees down, plant crops, and, you know, grow the surplus or sell the surplus. So, you know, the concept of the value of the lands was different between the two people. And it was that values conflict where you've got the Europeans saying, well, it, it should be farmed. And their, their notion of individual land ownerships, this is my land, this is, I till the soil, I get the crops from it. And to the Indian, no, this is our land. We are all available to use this land to gather the resources that we need. They didn't have to have individual ownership. Yeah, I read where um, it spoke about the Europeans was kind of like pushing the Creek people, pushing all the Southeastern tribes to farm. They was really pushing them to plant cotton and sell cotton back to the Europeans and stuff that's coming in from Georgia. And you're right. That's that's exactly what happened because, uh, you know, we see and we've heard talk about the Americanization of the Indians because how the Indians lived, how the Creek people and the other Indian tribes lived was foreign to them. No concept about that way of life. That The European way of life is you went out to the field, you worked all day, and you came home, hope you had a good crop, sold it, and plant another crop that year. The Indians didn't depend on that for their livelihood. And so the Europeans could not think or conceive of any person not living the way they do and that was really it that uh, it was foreign to them just as the way the Europeans were living was foreign to the Indians because they couldn't conceive of why get up and go till this crop you know whenever you've got all the resources you need to make your life good as they know it You've got it all available around you, so why do you have to clear land? They believe there was more important things to do other than... Or or just as important. Just as important. Well, like, you really see they viewed the land so differently, where natives viewed it as, like, this is how we live. This is how we survive. We use, like, naturally grown fruits and vegetables that are here, or naturally grown nuts, and we're hunters and gatherers rather than the Europeans who utilized the land to make money, to make right. their currency. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did have, like, 
community gardens and things, but it wasn't to sell or make any yeah. profit. Yeah, it was them. just to sustain themselves. Yeah. Exactly. You know, they, you know, because that in this period of time, there were horticulturalists. They domesticated plants. They planted crops for use during that year and seed for the next year. Put up seed so they could plant again. So planting and growing of crops was not foreign. But it was the magnitude of it and what the purpose of growing was for. The purpose of the creeks in growing a crop was to provide foods during the year and seed for next year. It was not to sell. Mm-hmm. Now, we've also heard there were trading activities all around. So, you know, there was something that you would have that you would exchange with another neighboring tribe or uh, group at a farther away for some good, but it it was not you know full time hundred percent reason why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So that concept of the land use was probably one of the biggest factors that led to removal, and uh, because it also had you know the uh, Georgians, the people coming in because now. At this time, we've got the United States, so it's not necessarily the uh, the Europeans, but the Americans um, in Georgia that seize this land next door, and they've got an increased population. Not everybody was a large plantation owner in in Georgia. You had a number of people that uh, was looking for a small farm to make their living from and so they needed land to do that and that that area there where they coming in there with that's uh black belt country so that's really fertile really good farmland so mm-hmm. they realized that mm-hmm. so you really had that concept of, you know of the the competition or uh, envy if you will for for the land and the American notion that the land is being wasted, it's not being used to its best ability, and um, would try to, and they were trying to gain control of it, and they had to move the, the creeks off the land in order for them, because there was still some sort of notion, even at that time, that there was a territorial boundaries, and Things were not supposed to happen on either side. The creeks weren't supposed to invade and take over land on the American side, and the Americans were not supposed. To, it was a not uh, not adhered to mm-hmm. by any means. It was encroachments, and any time there was an encroachment, of course, if uh, the creeks uh, ran the white settlers out, you had the white settlers up in arms because. You know, maybe you would kill a few Americans while you ran them off. And so there was retaliation for those activities. So, it's con- you know, that borderland was conflict. Constantly is, that, conflict. is that where, like, the Treaty of 1832 started coming in? That That's where a large part of it came in. Um, the first treaty that talked about immigration... Uh, and that's how they put it in the treaties, at least, was immigration, because they didn't want to say removal. Uh, always put it in terms of uh, encouraging the Indians to move. That over here, west of the Mississippi, is new lands where it's yours, and you will not be bothered, and you can continue your... Uh, governmental organization, your government and your lifestyle without this encroachment and interference from the whites. So, you know, they always try to encourage it because of offering that as Uh, as a safe haven. Yeah, I've seen where they was like offering them, I would say bribes, like a blacksmith for so many uh, Indians that moved and so much money over for mm-hmm. so much so many Indians that was moved. Yeah, most of the treaties at that time you know, was uh, had annuities in there that they would pay a stipend to the to the tribe for distribution to the members. You know, as they say, to help them get set up in the new mm-hmm. lands. 
And again, you know, uh, with that Americanization emphasis, you give them a blacksmith. Now, why would you need a blacksmith if you're not using stone tools, implements, plows, things? So again, here's you, a skilled person, and the materials for that skilled person to work with to do the things we want you to do. Now go farm. Yeah, go farm. To help you farm like we think you ought to farm. And, you know, so there's they're putting in those encouragements in there. And the first one that uh, treaty was signed was the Treaty of 1825 in Indian Springs. And that's the one that William McIntosh got in trouble for. For seeding land without seeding land approval because, of the Creek Nation. Now, who was William McIntosh? William McIntosh was a leader, I think, amongst the Coweta. So he did have some stature, but he was only a leader of or head man for a certain little group. He did not represent the entire I think group. I read where it said he was principal chief, not, I guess they would say main chief, but he was just like principal chief. Yeah, yeah, he was, just, he was a leader there among the, I believe it was Coweta group. And, and that treaty gave up the lands in Georgia. It didn't really give up all the lands, cede all the lands in that was under Creek control. But it also um, said that they would immigrate to Oklahoma, to the west, west of the Mississippi. And um, at that time, the Creek National Council had passed a law, if you will, that said no man, no person shall give up the lands of the tribe with that under penalty of death. William McIntosh broke the law. He broke Creek law. Mm-hmm. And they had a defined punishment for whoever broke that law, which was death, execution. They said and they went to his house and just and got him and just shot him. Yeah, because that was yeah. that was the punishment. They they said what the punishment if you break this law, this is the punishment, and they carried out a rightful law of the nation. So why do you think he did that, though? Like, if he knew the clear punishments, too, why would he have even even stepped in that door? Um, who knows, really and truly, why he would go ahead, you know, perhaps he thought he had enough uh, power and authority that he could influence the rest of them afterwards. Um, you know, perhaps he thought he was affecting only a small portion of his, his group or people that looked up to him and followed him. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's a good question, but he wasn't the only one that signed it. There were others that signed it also. There was another that was executed with him. I can't remember the name. Mm -hmm. There was a group of, of, uh, Greek people that signed it and all of them were subject to punishment or death. And uh, because the next treaty that, after that one at 1825 was in um, 1826, and that treaty, because of what happened to William McIntosh, the government commissioners negated the Treaty of Indian Springs of 1826. They called it null and void because they recognized it did not have the backing of all the tribe. It was only one small faction. So in 1826, they said this was bogus. It was not a correct treaty. Mm-hmm. And they rewrote it. Um, they still got the lands in Georgia. 1826 treaty still ceded the lands in Georgia and then re- would have reduced the lands, creek lands, to within what is present-day Alabama at that point. And uh, still had an immigration policy in it. And as a matter of fact, they had one term in it where they recognized the William McIntosh faction had agreed to move west of the Mississippi. And they were still going, they being the federal government, 
was still going to assist that group to move and offered incentives the blacksmith and as a matter of fact they uh, put you know extra things in it to sweeten the pot that if over 3,000 immigrated then they would give another blacksmith mm -hmm. and another wheelwright um, someone else the skilled labor that they needed so they were looking at encouraging at least 3,000 if not more creeks to move west of the Mississippi at that time and uh, called for a delegation of the creeks to go out and inspect the land, see where they were going to live, come back and report about the conditions of that land and territory. So, you know, they, they did that to do that. I might say one thing that I've heard about Oklahoma in that time, you know, whenever you look at the ecosystems of what's here in the south and southeast, the lush green environment that we have that's here, mm -hmm. and you look at the environment you have in Oklahoma, Oklahoma at one time was considered the great American desert because yeah. uh, it's so different between mm -hmm. rainfall yeah. and vegetation and, you know, the amount of vegetation from the Oklahoma as compared to here. Mm. Personally, being from Oklahoma, I thought nah, it was always green. You know, I did like uh, having trees around me. I remember going out west, western Oklahoma, where it really is prairie and few trees, and would look for trees just so I yeah. feel comfortable. The part of Oklahoma that you're from is although it's a little drier, it still is really similar to... It's still green. And, uh, you know, again, when I came uh, came east over here into Florida, when I went to Florida and through Al around here in Alabama, you know, the size of the trees is so different. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought we had forests in Oklahoma. No. <laughs> no, they're here. <laughs> you know, so you look at that type of environment. Mm -hmm. where you had these tall trees, lush, uh, plenty of rainfall, to move to Oklahoma where it's a little drier, smaller trees, smaller, you know, it's harder, harder to scrap a living. Mm -hmm. You know, even mm -hmm. if you were a farmer, it would be harder. And you're, again, changing of the plant resources, like I said, that the creeks depended on, Yeah. you know, for the, the lands around them to provide them. So it was it was a it was a big difference, but um, you know back to why removal. You know, removed because of their continued pressure, I would say the demand for land, because the next treaty, eighteen thirty, the Treaty of eighteen thirty two, was the one that eventually uh, caused removal to happen. You know, say caused removal because it did not specifically say that the tribe would immigrate. Mm -hmm. What it really was was an allotment treaty. Mm -hmm. It allotted the creek lands to headmen and, and heads of household, again, ignoring the matrilineal uh, nature of creeks where they dealt with the men and they gave it to the men rather than including, you know, the women's right, which again is disrupting the, the known society, disruptive to that, but it allotted the lands to them and allowed, so the 1832 treaty being, was the allotment treaty that gave, um, had men and head of households an allotment, 640 acres for uh, head men, which is a section of land, and 160 acres, if I remember correctly, for heads of households, and caused a census to be taken so that they would know how much land is going, of the creek land is going to be allotted out, the lands to be surveyed. And of course, it, uh, one of the things about that treaty 
is it recognized that there were already white settlers on Creek land in in that territory. They had already encroached on the land. Yeah, it was that in, in Oklahoma or we're still in Alabama. Alabama, okay. Yeah, Alabama, because we're talking about removal from yeah. from Alabama. That there were white settlers already within the Creek territory that were there illegally. Um, the treaty provided that those white settlers would be moved, but allowed them to harvest their crop. And after their crop was harvested, they would be moved. So it allowed not immediately, immediate removal, but removal after the crops, which, uh, or removal of the white settlers after harvesting. And that was, you know, that was paying homage or giving, you know, these illegal intruders some extra benefits, even though probably shouldn't have gotten it, mm-hmm. uh, but benefits of studying there. You also had at that time, you know, Alabama had become a state by that time. Um, and as soon as the treaty was signed, or even before probably, they, Alabama started sectioning it up into counties. It started... Uh, designating counties within the Creek Territory, the Creek lands. And when they designate a county, they would have to have people in there to manage the county business, the sheriff, the other uh, governmental infrastructure for a county, which is encouraging white settlement into Creek lands. Mm -hmm. So you had, you know, continued encroachment up on there and one of the things about the allotment is that the allotment apparently was to be held in trust for the individual for ten of uh, a term of five years after five years that individual would have received a free fee simple title which means it was his to do with as his own. But even though uh, they did not have a fee simple title to their allotment, the treaty did make provisions for the individual to sell their allotment. Before the five years. Before the five years. And that sale was supposed to have been approved by the government by the federal government commissions and signed by the president Mm -hmm. so uh, it had provisions because again that was one of the part of the Americanization is and I've heard it too even in the allotment treaty in in Oklahoma where everything they keep uh, pushing they keep saying is let the individual Indian decide for themselves to manage their own affairs rather than have this communal attitude, the tribal-owned attitude. Let the individual... Trying to pretty much took away that community culture that Creeks had. Right. Trying to, trying to influence that and change that. Exactly. So you have all these conflicts, uh, particularly for the land, and the land companies formed uh, in Georgia and around about that, you know, just as soon as that treaty was signed, they're in there trying to buy up lands, the the allotments. That was like the um, Columbus Land Company? <laughs> that was one of them. Yeah, they, they were allowing... Um, they were allowing slaves, being that they had more in common with the Indians, to go in and speak with the Indians and ask them to sell land to, back to the Columbus Land Company. They was also advised to kind of like follow these, follow the Indians around wherever they went and continue on begging to sell the land until either the Indian just left and immigrated or sold the land for a small amount of price and that was a way for them to butt in on Indian land fairly quickly 
Yeah, those those uh, land companies were very aggressive, very aggressive in in getting um, agreements from the Indians to sell their land, and uh, there were other frauds. You know, oftentimes it would be somebody to go in and represent themselves to be the allottee and not them. Mm -hmm. Sign the uh, agreement paper or the sale paper collect their money from the company, the land company, and disappear. Because there was no really identification or anything for them mm -hmm. to look yeah. at. So, Right. And, and, you know, some of those agreements were held up for a long time because some of the commissioners recognized the fraud. Some of the commissioners, in trying to do their job diligently, which is meeting... The terms of the treaty and the intent of the treaty is not to defraud the Indian to hold up those terms, you know, was pressured and oftentimes uh, continued on with it under that pressure. We're told to pass it through. Hmm. And so it was that competition for the land that led them, the land companies coming in, grabbing as much land as they can, uh, which led to, you know, quite frankly, it looked like a complete destitution of the Creek tribe. They no longer had a control of a ways of their livelihood as they're used to. Uh, you had the uh, Alabama state and county exercising laws and control over them, which is counter to their own sovereign nature as a nation and a, and a tribe, encroachment on that, that was pretty much, like I said, in order to maintain what they were used to, it was better to move. And wasn't um, Lynn McGee allotted some of that land over like around Tensaw area? Well, that, Lynn McGee got a, a grant lands, but it was separate from and a different treaty than okay. the 1832 treaty. Okay. Uh, well, since we're kind of getting into Port's Patriarch, how did Port's Creek ancestors be able to stay in this land and not be removed? I think there was two things working for Port's, the reason that they were not removed or not caught up in the removal. Because, again, let's let's be honest about the removal. In some instances, the federal government and the army and and the state and county militia would actually round up the creeks, herd them to a stockade, keep them under guard until uh, a steamboat came or they could get enough wagons and start moving them. So it was, while I say the removal for the creek tribe became a means of survival of the nation, they were also forced to do that. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, entirely that, you know, let's let's go. It was some of it, you're going. Yes. So, there's a yeah. lot of rumors on why the right porch ancestors got to stay. And it's kind of where we're trying, we're wanting to kind of do away with those rumors and mm -hmm. give as much truth as possible. And, and, and that's, you know, that's a very good point, Billy and, and, and Mallory, as you ask, you know, why? Because it is important to Port's history, the reason why they uh, remain, their ancestors remained here in Southwestern, whenever the Alabama, whenever the major Creek Nation was, as I said, rounded up, uh, strongly encouraged, coerced into moving. And yet this group of Creeks here in Southwestern did not. And I think there's two things that influenced their being able to stay. And I'll couch it that way. They were able to stay. One is the location of their lands in Southwestern Alabama and the size of the population. Mm -hmm. The uh, 
the size of the population is probably easier to talk about first, you know, because they were small. You know, we talked about 3,000, looking for 3,000 to immigrate under that 1832 or 1826 treaty originally. There wasn't 3,000 here. There was maybe 300 at max here. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have the large group. You did also without the large group, the land speculation in southwestern Alabama had already happened by 1832. So there was not in any more land speculation. And, and fortunately, for whatever reason, a lot of this part of Alabama still remained in public domain. And being public domain land, I think was very important and influential to the Creeks, to the Porch Creeks ancestors. But, you know, everything had already happened here in, in Southwestern. Because if you look, the land here in Southwestern Alabama was ceded in 1814 as part of the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Mm -hmm. This land was already outside of Creek control. So the land speculation, it was open for settlement at 1814, 1816. We do know Lynn McGee had a land, had a homestead along the Alabama River prior to the Creek War of 1814. After the Creek War of 1814, and this area became open for settlement because it was ceded, Lynn McGee lost his farmstead. A, a white local white person made claim to it and was able to convince the courts, even though Ed Lynn had other people testifying for him, uh, the, they believed this white person that the white person said it was his land. He had uh, farmed it and that Lynn wasn't there, had abandoned it. Hmm. And, and, you know, Lynn wasn't able to uh, win in court uh, because again, you know, Indians were did wasn't amount to anything at all mm -hmm. in the court system. They were better lucky if they got to testify. Mm -hmm. You know, so Lynn had lost his original homestead here, but the lands around it had already been ceded in 1832. Lynn and some others that were living and had established some homesteads and some way of making life uh, for themselves, making a life for themselves, were established here. Uh, didn't have the competition for land. Here as in? Had southwestern. Oh, south, southwestern. Western Alabama because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, around the Alabama River. Tensile uh, River area, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. Tennessee, Alabama River, mm -hmm. uh, because Lynn's land was on the Alabama River. It was over there by um, Bailey's Creek, okay. up in that area. Okay. And matter of fact, Bailey's Creek is named after Dixon Bailey, who uh, was a um, a Creek citizen also that uh, had a ferry there. You know, we talked about. Uh, Dixon's Ferry with uh, Alex Corbin that about oh, yeah. you know the tribe just being part of the Creek War mm -hmm. of eighteen fourteen. You know, so the the Creeks that were living here had already established themselves, and um, they were granted lands uh, if they were uh, had been actively assisted the, uh, the American side, and I don't know why they put that term in that 1814 and 1816 treaty, because you, you had so many of the, the Creek tribe assisting against the Red Sticks. Mm -hmm. I think what she called them was uh, the Nationalist, yeah, Creek Nationalist, which is a good term for those that were not part of the Red Sticks. So you had plenty of these nationalist Creeks that 
was eligible for land grants. But if their land that they were using was not in part of the ceded land, they didn't need it. Mm-hmm. If they were members of uh, Tukabachi, for instance, fighting on the side, and their land, Tukabachi territory, was still within Creek lands, they didn't need grants. They already had the land. They already had the land. They already had free use of it. Only those in the ceded lands needed title to the lands. Mm-hmm. So you had those that had received, for the most part, received their title around after 1814, before 1832. Just so happens that also Lynn McGee did not get his title to his land. Because he didn't need it. No, he, he needed settled. it. He needed it because he lived in this yeah. this area, this okay. uh, seeded area. He needed it, but uh, for various reasons. One was he was injured in the war and was not able to make claim to the land early enough. And then later on, I guess when it became important that um, to him, uh, he had the difficulties finding lands. Mm-hmm that matched the terms of the of the treaty. Okay. So that's that's why they I think the porch ancestors stayed or remained was not caught up in the removal because of the numbers. They were small. Uh, all the concentration was on the larger population of Greeks. And so these were forgotten about kind of that um old saying out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind, or just, you know, not big enough to worry about. Mm-hmm. Not big enough to worry about. Yeah. I seem to recall Tony Paredes uh, having seen in the National Archives a letter where one of the Army commanders had written the War Department and asked, what about this group of Creeks in southwestern Alabama? Should we go down and get them and, and for the removal? And the response was, leave them alone if they want to, want to stay. So don't worry about them. Hmm. It was almost kind of like they either thought it was such a small group that they would have all died out by just assimilated or in just assimilated in. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, again, you look at the terms of that 1832 treaty. It was not to move the Creeks. The idea was the Creeks would stay if they wanted to, mm-hmm. and they could live in those intolerable conditions. Let them stay. Let them become part of the other the population. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had a group down here that wasn't big enough and was not exerting at that point a great deal of control over any of the land because, again, they were Creek citizens. They were members of that larger Creek nation. So that larger Creek Nation was representing them. They were living outside the Creek Nation and still had dealings with them, but the lands they occupied was not part that the federal government was concerned about anymore. They already took it. Mm-hmm. They don't need to take it now the yeah. second time. Yeah. So why bother this group that's down here that's, you know, living on... They already own that land. They already own that land. Yeah. Even though, you know, to uh, contend that Lynn McGee and the others that lived here knew they were Creek. They lived a Creek lifestyle as they could in this area and recognized an allegiance to the Creek Nation. Mm-hmm. And it was after that removal period when the Creek Nation, as a large, was no longer around, that Porch Creek had to start developing and becoming stronger as far as maintenance of their way of life. Mm-hmm. Talking about their way of life, did they add any English ways into their Creek ways? Uh, to some degree, but I don't think, again, I, I do not see with... Um, the porch ancestors particularly, you know, we know there's David Tate that had plantations and I think his will 
mentioned a sawmill and things. And he was sued by the Pat and Leslie Company, or what, uh, the company that bought Pat and Leslie for a debt he owed them. And, you know, so we, you had some, some wealthy creeks in this area, but not every creek in here was wealthy. And Lynn McGee was one of those that was not wealthy. But they had an idea of a way of life, and that's what they were desiring to do was to live that way of life in this this area. Mm-hmm. Can you like describe like the lifestyle during this time for these Creeks families that lived here? I think what you had there is is a very common Creek way of life where you had a subsistence garden that provided you with the vegetable needs and the, the corn and stuff because you know we knew Creeks were horticulturalist and in the creek towns you the people had their own individual garden and then they had a communal garden i think in down here in southwest alabama you found the same setting that Mm -hmm. the homes had uh their home garden and uh i'm not sure they would have had a communal garden or whether they enlarged there so they could oh, have they surplus shared, to give away. Between. Yeah, because we, you know, we see that surplus garden being given out up in, you know, the 70s around Still here. Yeah, kind of a, that surplus garden, community garden thing now. Yeah, we have a community garden going now, which is a continuation of that concept from, from times. And even, you know, um, when I came here in the 70s, you see every house, whole just about, had a, had a home garden. And they were constantly giving away whatever surplus that they didn't have. Extra tomatoes, okra, mm-hmm. beans and things, you know, giving it away. So while they didn't necessarily plant a community garden as such in, in that time period, they plant large enough so they could produce a surplus beyond their own needs to help those that need it. Yeah. So, you know, so I think that way of life continued. They still worked as a community. That is it. That is exactly it. Is that I think that was the lifestyle and the things that was important to the Creeks to maintain their identity here was to that sense of community. They continued to help each other, just as you would in a town. You know, your obligation in a Creek tribal town is to the people in the town. Mm. The obligation of the Porch Creeks here was to the other Creeks that were living around them. And you see there in their settlement pattern where you've got, you know, family houses close together, living close together so they could visit, associate with each other, and help each other. Mm-hmm. So you had that continuing lifestyle, creek lifestyle, going on. The governments, the Mikos, the kings, you know, they were gone maybe to Oklahoma. And while the people here, you know, electing a leadership leader you know, wasn't common, but there became somebody who rose because of their particular characteristics and kindness of heart and the other qualities of them as an individual that the people looked to for leadership, for giving direction and, and helping the community continue. Who were some of these influential people during this time? Well, I, I, you know, I certainly think Lynn McGee was mm-hmm. one. Now, after immediately following him, you know, uh, we hear about Alec Rowland being one. And uh, Fred Walker. Fred Walker era, too. So, you know, we've got people that kind of, a lot of these, you know, you only see them with some reference to whenever a... Um, an outside 
group, the county, you know, when they had a work group, needed a work group, who did they turn to to get up the work crew? You know, so you look at that, that person that provided, you know, was a contact point with the outside world. Because, you know, you see that with, you know, the famous Fred Walker story about, you know, the Episcopals coming in and wanting to have service. And they say, we're having service on Sunday. Now it's to a few individuals, nobody showed up. Second time, we're having service. Few people showed up. And somebody, you know, and the preacher finally asked, why are we getting... Everybody was willing to talk to him during the week, but nobody was coming during... He said, well, you haven't talked to Fred Walker. Go talk to him. And the preacher went and talked to Fred Walker and explained it, and Fred listened to him and said, okay. And the next Sunday, it was full. Hmm. You know, That's next door. That's so, you know, you've got that type of looking to a person to give you direction to make, you know, that you rely on. Mm-hmm. And it, it is something that, you know, the person may not be elected, but it's just assumed responsibility mm-hmm. and something the others depend on him and that person to make good decisions for them because you can trust them. We see the same thing that happened with Calvin McGee. Essentially the same thing with the education. There was nothing in Calvin's background that would have said, this man is going to be a leader of the Porch Creeks. Mm -hmm. Nothing in his early background. But whenever the time came that, you know, for whatever reason it struck him this is important, and he took, you know, some sort of leadership role of organizing, started organizing efforts, something that could be accomplished, people started looking to him, and he rose to that occasion. Mm -hmm. And that's how the early Creek leaders would have done something very similar. Mm Mm-hmm. So kind of going back to Lynn McGee and him getting land grants to come down here, why was he granted land in current day Atmore? I know we've talked about the Tinsall area, but like how did the Porch Creek get to Atmore? Uh, to this this area. And the, the story of Lynn McGee's grant lands is, is really pretty unique as as it goes, because, of course, he was authorized to take a grant of land uh, based upon the Treaty of 1814 that was, again, re-ratified in 1816 with the Treaty of Fort Jackson that followed the, the Creek War. That is was the authorization for him to take grant land, and we talked about a war entry or whatever that prevented him from uh, filing for his grant um, for his land at an earlier period. Um, Also that he was cheated out of the original place that he settled on. So, you know, he probably had to go through a process of identifying, finding a place that he wanted uh, to file for. And the one of the unique things about, we talk about Lynn McGee's grant land, the land was not granted to him until after his death. Oh, I did not know that. That the land was granted to his heirs. And the some of the things that went about it is that in 1836, you know, all the time whenever there was removal, uh, and I haven't found the complete details. I talked to Alice Corbin to see if there's anything in the um, Department of Archives in history, but uh, Alabama. So one of the unique things about and it was trying to find out you know, asked Alex Colvin if there is anything in the Alabama 
archives in history, and it's something I certainly would like to follow up on later on, that the Alabama legislature petitions the federal federal Congress, U.S. Congress, to pass bills and relief of Lynn McGee and other Indians Creeks that did not receive a grant or file a grant early on in the the grant process, you know, early on after 1814 or 1816. And you have the Alabama legislature asking the federal government to help this group of Indians. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they're moving this group of Indians, another one of those ironies of things. So... um, the Senate passed a bill that allowed Lynn McGee, um, Susan Marlowe, Samoyce to take their grant, their land after 1836. And okay, let them take the land. And the unique thing about that Senate bill, which uh, had bearings later on with the Porch people, the Porch tribe, that Senate bill said that they may take their grant according to the terms of the 1814 treaty. The 1814 treaty that was originally signed and presented by Andrew Jackson provided that those that had, as they put it, remained friendly, and again, I don't understand that, but that was the way they wrote it, friendly to the Creeks that had assisted the government in the in the fight to take a, a grant of land. And that land would be theirs as long as anyone of their family lived on it. Yeah. That would be theirs for as long as their family used it. And it would be in trust. The 1816 treaty, because, you know, there was problems with what Andrew Jackson had done, even though it was ratified and it was redone in 1816, provided that these grants would be for the duration of the person receiving them, that they would be in trust only as long as that person was alive. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1836, they made that grant that Lynn McGee and the others mentioned there in trust to be held for them as long as they had an heir living and using that land, which uh, we know in 1924, the as I said, at the restrictions, the trust status was removed administratively, mm-hmm. which you know, probably was the wrong thing to do. But 1836, they granted, passed a Senate bill for Lynn McGee. And Lynn McGee was alive at that time. Mm -hmm. Lynn McGee was actively petitioning, filing depositions that told his story of why he was not able to take the land and his attesting to his being, uh, you know, actively in the war with uh, Andrew Jackson, Colonel Russell, and a couple of other colonels um, that was there. So 1836, they passed it and said he could take it. They came back a year later, I believe it was, and amended that one because they came back and said there's not... 640 contiguous acres in a block. Yeah. So it allowed them to take it in sections that broken up parcels in tracks that totaled that amount. So we'll say in 1837, Lynn McGee was authorized to take his grant mm-hmm. where he won. He didn't file. He did not file. Hmm. His will, and I'm trying to get make sure I get the dates correct, I think it was about 1849, I believe, was, mm-hmm. was the time of his death. 
Mm-hmm. His will provided for, you know, his children, but is also named an executor of his estate. Uh, Clarence Hall, if I remember, was to be the executor of his estate. Clarence Hall is the person that went to the general land office, the patent office, and filed for a patent on the Lynn McGee grant lands, for the Lynn McGee grant lands, for the children, for Lynn's heirs. Interesting thing about doing that, uh, and I found some connection, and I probably have to do some more research to see exactly what happened. While Lynn McGee's will named an executor, Clarence Hall, there occurred therein, and all of this was being probated in Baldwin County because this part of Escambia County was part of Baldwin County. Mm-hmm. At the time, there was a guy, Laban, that was acting as a um, executor appointed by the courts because the original e- executor of the state uh, wasn't living up to their provisions or an orphan's court, as they called it. And he was executor of about five or six estates amongst Lynn McGee. He was offering the heirs $60 for them to sign over their interest in the grant land. And he did that. He's got evidence of him buying those entrants from Lynn's heirs, from George Stiggins' heirs, heirs and others. So he was trying to collect these grant lands that had not been filed on. And I think that's what prompted Clarence Hall to go down and file for the for his heirs. For the heirs so they would not be cheated out of it. And they took the grant as part of the grant lands up there just north of Huxford and lands here in Heda Padita. Mm. But all of this official filing and official time when it was designated by the U.S. land office, the government land office, was after Lynn McGee's death. Mm. So it's interesting. Yeah. But we know that Lynn McGee and... Lynn McGee's children lived on these lands. And that's probably is probably important for Clarence to file for those lands because people were living on them. Mm-hmm. And we think and we have evidence that because Lynn McGee was living on that land, raising his family, other creeks came and collected around him, was attracted around him, attracted to this this area because by gathering together they could maintain their lifestyle. Maintain that community. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, thank you, Mr. Larry, today for talking with all of us. And I think I learned a lot, and I think a lot of other people will have learned a lot of different things about Porch and Creek, and it's, especially in this area. It's a very inter- interesting topic on how Porch Creek ancestors came to where we are now in Hepedita and Porch area. Well, I appreciate your kind kind words to me. I don't feel like I'm uh, necessarily an expert on the topic. It just seems like I've had an opportunity or an interest in gaining more information because, you know, the Lynn McGee grant lands was very important to the uh, Porch Band of Creek Indians and its early um, history, its early lifestyle. So, you know, you hear, you've heard about it, or I've heard about it so much. And part of what just plain got me interested is, okay, well, we know about the Grantlands. We know about the importance of the land itself. Who was Lynn McGee? What type of person was he? 
So that's, you know, that kind of intrigued me to, to find out more about his background. And I'm glad to share it at any time, you know, with everybody because it's important. It's important to share this information that we gain, that we do research on to others. It really does solidify, I think most people say this, but he is the porch patriarch, really. I, I really do think he is the porch patriarch, you know, because of uh, everybody centered around, everything centered around his grant lands uh, early on in the development, and there was some quality about him that attracted others to be around, and that he was able to... Make them feel comfortable. Make them feel at home. Mm-hmm. Thank you for all listening to this week's episode of Porch Stories. Tune in next week. Thank you for listening to Porch Stories. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. 